If you're just joining us today, we are in our second to last sermon in a series entitled Seed to City. It's on the book of Revelation, and we're in the second to last chapter of the book of Revelation. That is the second to last chapter of the Bible. And we're going to take a look in just a moment at a text that is really full of life, full of uh, joy and hope. And I am so relieved that we get to study this together after last week, because last week we looked at a text that was full of foreboding and difficulty and all kinds of things. We saw that Satan was chained in the abyss, and there was a final battle between good and evil, and then there was the last judgment of all people. And um, that was a tough text. But this week we have this text that, honestly, as a preacher, I just want to read and get out of the way, because it is such a good text. This is a passage we read at memorial services because it's full of hope, and I want you to uh, enjoy it with me. Let's look at Revelation 21, beginning at verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now stop for a minute. Sea in the Old Testament was really the place of opposition to God. It's where God's enemies lodged. There was Leviathan, the great sea monster, as a sort of emblem of, of chaos and wickedness. And so now we see there's no sea. So apologies to you seafaring people amidst us. Uh, this is just a sort of symbol. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. John will go on to give elaborate details on the dimensions of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and, uh, and all of this is really great for us to consider. But I'm going to jump ahead to verse 22. There John writes, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, 
nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for this text, this great uh, vision of hope. We pray now that you would activate and energize the reading of your word and now also its preaching that we may be shaped and challenged and directed by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think you might agree with me if I said that we are a people with a penchant for newness. We like new things, don't we? We really do. Uh, new seems to be better, and advertisers, they know this about us. And so, how many times have we gone to the store and seen the label, new and improved? No matter how ridiculous that label actually is, how can something be new and improved at the same time? But we like things that are new, and things that are, are deteriorating or decaying, well, not so much. Polly and I bought our home 17 years ago this summer, home was built a few years before that, and I am learning that most of our homes, when they hit year 20, they need a lot of work. And uh, that's the case with our home. So this has been the summer of dealing with that. So we've needed paving stones relayed in the back, the deck refinished and resurfaced, a new awning installed. We needed a new toilet, uh, the kind with a slow lid. You know those lids? Those are pretty neat. Um, <laughs> And then we just discovered we're going to need a new roof from the hailstones recently. And if that weren't enough, when I was preparing this very section of this sermon yesterday, Rupali came and said, guess what? Our water heater in the basement has sprung a leak. Things run down. And uh, deterioration and decay is so much a part of our lives. We don't like that. We like things new. And except for wine and cheese, new is better, right? There's a new app for the smartphones out there. It's called FaceApp. Has anybody heard about it? FaceApp? FaceApp, in case you haven't heard, is something that Russian developers have created. You can download it for your smartphone. You might not want to, however, because people are concerned they're harvesting information, uh, facial recognition stuff, etc. But people like FaceApp because you can take a selfie and then you, by using the filters and software, you can age yourself into the future, quite realistically. Here's a good example of that. That's the same guy using FaceApp. You can begin to explore, well, what would it look like for me to be an old person? But thankfully, FaceApp works in reverse, so if you're an older person, you can make yourself look newer and younger. Here's another example. And when you're up close, you can see the differences right there. I think FaceApp is so popular right now because FaceApp is somehow helping us deal with our fear and fascination of aging. It's helping us process it and deal with it, and it's also appealing to our obsession with youth. So it goes both ways. But beneath all this, I think it's safe to say that we are people who cling to not only newness but life, and the threat of death is a very terrifying threat. In 1974, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. It's a, it's a great read. It speaks as clearly and powerfully today as it did then. But Becker said that all we as human beings have this innate denial of death. Death is so terrifying to us. We do all kinds of things to mitigate that and to somehow cope with that. 
Here's a quote that Becker offers at the beginning of the book. He writes, the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man, and we would add woman. Um, Becker says that we develop hero myths, myths about the great overcomer to help us uh, suppose that we might too overcome death. We develop all these kinds of things to deny death, but death as we know is 100%. Death will affect all of us. And friends, we never long for newness more than when we watch a loved one suffer and die. Some of you have journeyed with a spouse who was diagnosed with memory loss, and you have seen firsthand what that's like and the great, great sadness and sorrow of watching that person slip away. Some of us have watched a loved one battle with and lose a battle to cancer. We know what this is like, and it is so hard for us. We never long for newness more than when we watch a loved one die. John Donne was a British poet in the 17th century. He became a pastor as well. He wrote a famous poem called An Anatomy of the World, and it was written in 1611. And he wrote it on the anniversary of the death of a friend's daughter who was only 14 years old. She died, and Dunn wrote this elegy to not only her death, but our mortality. And it's a gripping, beautiful poem. And there's a famous quote that you may have already heard, and it goes like this, talking about mortality and the frailty of life. Dunn writes, "'Tis all in pieces, all coherence, gone." This is the entropy of life. It's life going to a more chaotic, disordered state. And we all wrestle with this. We all long for newness and for life. And friends, this is what we're given in our passage today. This is what John wants to communicate, the newness and the hope of our future in Jesus Christ. In the first five verses, we hear about a new heaven and a new earth. We hear about a new Jerusalem. And then we get that great crescendo where God says, I am making all things new. Oh, how we long for that. Isaiah 65 is being fulfilled and John picks up where Isaiah left off and tells us about this glorious future that awaits us all. You know, Jesus himself spoke of this. In Matthew chapter 19, he talked about the renewal of all things to come, where he would sit on his throne and and uh, judge and also redeem all things. Paul the Apostle spoke about this when he said that whenever we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become new. We become part of God's new leading edge of, of creation that God is remaking. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Friends, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Him, you are already on the leading edge, the vanguard of God's newness. And God will then prepare a new place for you and for me to live. You know, the new creation, many have said, is continuous and discontinuous with the current creation. Well, how do we understand this? Well, one of the best ways is to think about the resurrection body of Jesus. You recall in the Gospels, when Jesus was risen from the dead, his body was recognizable. It was still Jesus. People could recognize him. But it was different, that body. 
Jesus could pass through walls. Jesus could journey to places quickly and move about. And then Jesus could be raised into heaven in great glory. There's a continuity and a discontinuity with our current creation. And all those good things that we so appreciate in this world, all of those are going to be somehow lifted up and fulfilled in the world to come. And all those things that we uh, hate and that we loathe about our current creation, those will be put away. God brings newness. Wherever God is, there is life. There is newness. And this is, after all, what we try to communicate in the ministry of congregational care. Now, many of you know I, I get the challenge and responsibility and the joy of leading this ministry, but let me remind you that it is called congregational care and not pastoral care. Pastoral care seems to imply that only the pastor can give it, and that just isn't true. Congregational care says, no, we as the congregation give care to one another and we have leaders to help and lead us. But whenever we go to visit somebody who is in the extreme of life, whenever we go into a hospital room or whenever we go to a convalescent care facility or someone who is grieving or whenever we go to someone in hospice, we remind them it doesn't end here. This is not the sum total of who you are. No, you are new. And life is glorious. And you have a future beyond your wildest imagination. And I come simply to remind you of that and to reframe your current experience. That is congregational care. That is what we're about. God's newness. That's our first theme to think about today. But a second theme is related, and it's this, God's dwelling place. We have God's newness, but we also have God's dwelling place. Verse 3 of chapter 21, there John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. I've underlined dwelling place and dwell because I want to alert you to this most incredible set of words. That word dwelling place is a Greek word, skene. Skene is actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Shekinah. Has anybody heard of the word Shekinah? Many of you have. Shekinah is God's glory in the tabernacle in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. There God specially dwells with God's people uh, in a tent and travels with them all around. Skene is the tabernacle, the tent of God, where God's Shekinah glory dwells. And this has been then transliterated yet again into our English language, and it's the word seen. Seen. It's where uh, in the old days they had theaters that were almost like an open tent and you could view them. But seen, it's saying that God has come upon the scene of our lives. God is dwelling with us, tabernacling among us. You know, there's only one other place in the New Testament that this word is used. It's in John chapter 1, verse 14. And there John is talking about Jesus, who was the preexistent Word of God, the Son of God, through whom all things were spoken into being. And John writes this, The Word became flesh, became a human, and made his dwelling, eskenosin, skene, made his tabernacle, tented among us. Or as Eugene Peterson said, he took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's such an amazing thing. God dwells among us. And 
God dwells among us in a particularly amazing way. God dwells among us in closeness and in intimacy. You know, I am convinced that one of the Bible's biggest themes is this idea of God coming close. The Bible begins, after all, in the book of Genesis with God walking in the cool of the day with the man and the woman. There's unbroken closeness. They enjoy that kind of intimacy and that kind of fellowship. But we know from reading our Bibles in Genesis 3 that there was a precondition of freedom, and when the man and the woman abused their freedom, they split off from God. And so this distance from God ensues, and sin and death follow along with that. And the rest of the whole Bible is God trying to close the gap, God coming close, God trying to restore closeness with us. This is the whole Bible theme. And then God does this intimately in Jesus, who becomes one of us. And then, believe it or not, God then becomes willing to dwell inside of us through the Holy Spirit. This is the whole theme of the Bible, God drawing close, God wanting to dwell with us. And God does this in a particular way, verse 4. Let's take a look at Revelation verse 4. It says that when God draws close to dwell among us, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Think about that for a minute. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Do you think of God that way? A lot of us don't. A lot of us really struggle with this idea that God can be intimate and tender toward us. And maybe we've come here this morning really concerned about God and whether God is pleased with us. After all, we may have had parents or authority figures in our lives who have said, you're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not successful enough. You're not pretty enough. And so we begin to believe that God must think that of us as well. We're not enough. But this verse tells us that's not how God views us. God wants to gather us, put us on his lap, and wipe away every tear. This is the kind of God who wants to dwell among us. And we've come here wanting to believe that. And I want to remind you, this is the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ. And again, our varied ministries of care and, and service in this church aim to take that message and enflesh it to others. Whenever someone in Fishy, our middle school ministry, or whenever someone in club, a volunteer leader, has come to a student to be with them and to remind them of God's love, whether at school or after school, at a sporting event, wherever, that has been a visible depiction of this God, the God who draws near. And I am happy to say that there's a reunion this weekend of fishy and club folks because of that ministry. And many of you who are here for the reunion, you've gone into full-time ministry because you were convinced that that's the kind of God your leader shared with you and who is leading your life. God's intimate indwelling is for all people. That's another very important part of our text. Verse 3 says, that God will dwell with them and they will be his people. But it really should say peoples. Because the word is probably better translated as a plural. What does this mean? Is that God is the God of all peoples, of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Not just the white North Americans. Not even just the Jewish people. God is the redeemer and savior, the creator and lover of all peoples. This is true biblical inclusiveness, true biblical multiculturalism, true biblical diversity right here. God is the God of all peoples. 
We've had God's newness, God's dwelling place. Now we get to the last movement, last theme of our text, God's city. We read in verse 2 that the new Jerusalem, John says, he saw it coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. John is using this image of great consummation, great wedding night intimacy to try to tell us what it's going to be like to dwell with God for eternity. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be like the very greatest intimacy we've ever experienced on earth. And then God, or excuse me, John goes on to say that he didn't see a temple in the city. There was no temple. But in fact, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Do you see what's happening here? In the temple, whether it was the tabernacle in the wilderness period or the temple once Israel came into the land, these were places where God dwelled among the people. And there were careful instructions to fence God's holy presence from the people with a concentric set of circular fences or or gates or walls so that only one person, one time a year, the great high priest could go into God's very presence on the Day of Atonement. That's what a temple does. It says God's among us, but don't get too close. Now we hear there's no temple in the city. No temple. Why? Because God is among us, and you can get close. God comes close. That is amazing. And then we hear that the gates never shut. Excuse me, let me go back, because I I just missed a point. Where do we get this whole idea of temple? Where does the idea really shift? It shifts in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Let's take a look at what Jesus said about the temple. Jesus was answering his critics, and here's what he said to them. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. This changes everything. There's no need for a building anymore. Why? Because Jesus Christ is where worship takes place. If human beings and God want to have intimacy, where does it happen? It happens in the God-man, Jesus. If we want to offer pleasing sacrifice to God, where does that occur? Not in a building, in Jesus and his work on the cross. Jesus is the temple. And this is what John reiterates in the book of Revelation. Then we hear about this temple that the gates never shut. Well, why should they? Because there's no evil to defend against. The gates never shut, meaning you and I can get in whenever we want. It's free and it's wonderful. And then we hear that the nations walk by the the light of the city. The nations bring their glory and honor. And once again, we get this vision of transnational, multicultural, multi-ethnic beauty. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe brought in, enjoying fellowship with one another and with God. And then we hear that this new Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. Why is this so significant? Because so often in its history, Jerusalem was a city that people were trying to elevate from down below by human effort. And this whole effort has a name. It's called Zionism. Zionism is based on that old nickname for Jerusalem, Zion. And Zionism is a movement to make Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, the preeminent city among all the cities of the world. To make sure it's the homeland for a certain kind of people. 
God's people, uh, whether Jewish or Christian. And there are movements and have been Zionist movements that seek to elevate Jerusalem by using human means, political, religious, whatever. But the point I think John's trying to make here is that the Jerusalem to come will not be elevated by human effort. It comes down out of heaven from God. Only God can build the ultimate Jerusalem. It's so interesting to me that in his earthly ministry, Jesus didn't have a lot to say about Jerusalem. And when he had something to say, it was almost always critical. And that was surprising because people were looking to Jesus to somehow restore Jerusalem, but that wasn't his interest. I think Jesus was looking ahead, looking ahead to the new Jerusalem. How many of you remember the Haman fire? Remember the Haman fire? The Haman fire was in the summer of 2002. It started 35 miles northwest of Colorado Springs. It was the worst wildfire in Colorado's history. And the smoke could be smelled and seen across the state. And at that time, Governor Bill Owens said, it looks like all of Colorado is burning. And Rapali and I came to Colorado in the summer of 2002 to buy a home so that we could join all of you. And we bought a home during the smoke of the Haman fire, so thick that we couldn't see but a mile or two outside of our home. The skies were red with smoke. And how delighted we were when that fire ended and the winds blew the smoke away and we saw that we had a mountain view. (laughs) We didn't know it because the smoke was so thick. You see, I think that's what John is doing. John is blowing away the smoke of the fire so that we see this vision, this view of the future that is so beautiful and so glorious and so hopeful. This is what John wants to give us. He wants to realign our eyes to the horizon of hope. You know, a lot of preachers like to use illustrations from C.S. Lewis. We particularly like to quote from his Chronicles of Narnia, and almost always we quote from the very first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a good book, and it deserves being quoted, but there are six other books, after all. Seven books in the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And you, many of you know the backstory. It really kind of goes like this. There are the four Pavenzi children. It's World War II, and London's being bombed. They're moved out to the countryside. They go to Professor Kirk's house. They discover a wardrobe, and they press through the wardrobe, and they enter a mythical, magical land called Narnia. And there they interact with talking animals. They meet the great lion, who is king of Narnia, Aslan. But then they go back and forth from bombed-out London or Great Britain, back and forth to Narnia. And I wanted to read you the very last paragraphs of the last book in the series. Um, I love this text. It moves me every time. Aslan is talking to the Pavenzi children. And he says this, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. 
This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is the future that John tells us of. It is our future. Let us trust in it. Will you pray with me? Lord, I especially want to pray for anyone here today who has come feeling hopeless, feeling despair, feeling crushed by life, a person who needs this revelation of newness, this hopeful vision. Oh Lord, minister specifically to this person. Touch them. Encourage them. And encourage all of us as we need this reminder, oh Lord, about your goodness and about the newness to come. Help us, O oh Lord, to walk in faith and in hope and in love. For Jesus' sake, amen.